1: That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you
0: there. It's Friday, May the 3rd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Today I am joined by Michael Brendan Doherty, who is a senior columnist for the Conservative American publication, The National Review. As you can guess from his name, he's of Irish-American stock and he's got a very particular life story which informs both his political beliefs and his thoughts about Ireland and Irish history, all of which is explored in his new book, My Father Left Me Ireland. Michael Brandon Doherty, you are very welcome to the podcast. I should say I really enjoyed your book, My Father Left Me Ireland. It's, it's really thought-provoking and a really unusual kind of a book, and I'm certainly not going to try to summarize it. So maybe you could do that for our listeners.
1: Sure. Uh, my Father Left Me Ireland is written as a series of letters to my Irish father. Um, I was raised in America, in New Jersey, and then in the suburbs in New York uh, by my single Irish American mother and my father was not really a part of my life growing up I mean he actually he was but I would only see him every couple of years sometimes just for a few hours sometimes for a couple days at a time and then he returned to his life in Ireland and so the letters describe to him my upbringing which was filled with this kind of diaspora nationalism which I soaked in as a child, rejected as a teenager. And then it kind of starts to come back to me as I have children. And these letters are written as uh, Ireland is kind of commemorating the rising and I'm having children and reading about the rising. And they kind of become the basis for a a reconciliation between my father and I or an understanding as adults. So on the surface level the book is about how you know having children myself connected me to my father after a fatherless childhood and then on a on a deeper level for those who have ears to hear i i suppose there's a bit of commentary about the world we're living in today and the political situation and, and thoughts on nationalism Be,
0: but, um, because you are you are a senior columnist with the national review so you're sort of it's fair to say on the conservative end of the American politi- political spectrum
1: yeah I would i would say that yeah i would i would I would say I'm a conservative nationalist.
0: And then informing the book, which is, you know, which is very emotional, the book at at, at times. And it's, you know, as you say, it takes the forms of these letters. And in a way, it's a a sort of a memoir, I suppose, too. But just to understand, too, that your your mother is Irish-American. She's a a hyphenate, but uh, with the emphasis on the American because several generations back. But because and the fact that she had you, she started taking a much more intense interest in Irish politics and Irish culture, and that was a very important part of your life when you were growing up.
1: Yeah, I was raised, I almost believed at times that we would move to Ireland or that I would be moved there or have to spend time there. And my mother, you know, joined up. At the time, in the 1980s, there were lots of Irish people coming into New York and Boston, and... Um, you know, for jobs, for money, for opportunity. Uh, and my mother threw herself a little bit into that community and into this larger community of Irish language learners that actually exists in the United States. And she wore, you know, bracelets for political prisoners in Northern Ireland. So it was, it was a feature of our life. You know, my childhood, I would have grown up remembering her cursing Margaret Thatcher with other Irish people. So, yeah, it was... I grew up with this almost uh imaginary and ideal Ireland uh just over the horizon
0: and that world in which you grew up i mean some people have said and i 'm not sure what you think of this that that there's actually a specific irish american identity uh almost like an irish amer- a nation of Irish Americans, which is to some degree separate and different from those of us who uh, who live our lives on on this <laughs> island. Do you think there's any truth in that yeah i mean there's definitely a difference
1: i think th- Irish America is the that world I describe from the 1980s is also disappearing in many ways. Uh, you know, I grew up in a neighborhood where um, everyone was descended from, it seemed, from uh, a wave of immigration previously of, you know, Italian American immigrants, Irish American immigrants, Polish American immigrants. And um, so that that sense of, well, which are you? uh, was, was part of going to my local Catholic school. Right. It's like, we were all American, but, you know, we were also all Italian Filipino, uh, or Irish. And so, yeah, there, there was that world. And of course, you know, I describe a little bit in that I, I, I hint in the book in some ways, of course, there were delusions we had, you know, it was very easy for my mother to take a strong, you know, Schinner line on Northern Ireland, whereas, you know, my father would be like many, most people in the Republic would, would take a much more moderate or, or sceptical line uh, on, on those topics in the 1980s.
0: Yeah, because actually I was, um, I was one of those immigrants in New York in the 1980s and I remember having ferocious arguments with people who I just thought were uh, so ignorant in my view, at the time as a stroppy young teenager, early 20 something, about what was actually happening in Ireland and what was really happening in the Troubles. And they had this uh, green, misty-eyed vision of of the Irish liberation struggle, which I did my best to disabuse them of, but uh, we just ended up (laughs) shouting at each other most of the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: there was definitely, yeah, there, there was definitely a sense, you know, George Orwell writes in his famous essay on nationalism that it's much easier to be nationalistic about a country uh, that you're not actually in because you're not bearing the costs of that uh, nationalism, that, those nationalist politics and what they bring. So, yeah, that, that was that was part of my childhood. And, and I acknowledge that that. That in some ways it was disconnected and, and in some ways stupid.
0: But, but I suppose the, the other thing that strikes me about that, particularly about the, the Irish-American experience is that it's sort of intensified in your case. A very important part of the Irish-American experience as expressed in, in song and in certain films um, is this sense of loss of being taken away from this beautiful home place and you'll never see it again. And, and all that kind of stuff. But that becomes more intense in, in, in your childhood experience because there's this Absent father, who's away in this place too, so you sort of have these very specific kind of dreams of Ireland. Uh, you talk um, very poignantly at one point. I think you're on holiday. You're on the Jersey Shore. You're looking out across the Atlantic, and you imagine on the other side of those waves is Ireland. Although actually, yeah. it's probably Morocco on the other side of those waves. But yeah, ex-
1: exactly. I'm looking at Mauritania. <laughs> yeah, or um, yeah, exactly. I, I, I felt Ireland was much closer to me than say Ohio. Right, growing up, you know uh, as an, as an imagination, you know, it was much more likely in, in my view, growing up that we would move to Ireland than that we would move to, you know, even Pennsylvania. So yeah, it was always something close to me. And then, and then I also describe a little bit, uh, you know, the book changes, you know, I, I basically point out that in 1994, there's the ceasefire in the North and that changes Irish America, uh, pretty quickly. And I, I felt that change pretty quickly because a lot of these, Uh, Emigrants that were in new york went home uh, as the economy was picking up and we ourselves moved out of a, a you know more ethnic neighborhood into the anonymous exurbs of of new york and ireland became this you know celtic tiger flotsam that was coming over the ocean this river dance and uh Lord of the Dance and all these CDs, all this music that was kind of flowing through my the big chain bookstores and through my house. So I had this now a changed idea instead of this like romantic lost home. It was sort of like, here's this uh, shop that's belching out Irish kitch at me all the time. And uh, and I. I started to hate it and resent it.
0: Yeah, just to say that's really, it's really interesting. Just to say you were born in 1980. So while all this is going on, that mid-90s kind of stuff about the commodification of Irish culture, the start of the Celtic tiger, changes in the United States as well, you know, certain types of social changes, an economic boom there too. And you're going through your teenage years. So not surprisingly, you're kicking back against, you know, what you were told when, when you were a child. So you sort of give up on all this Irish stuff for a while, do you?
1: Yeah, and 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 I connect that story to the fact that I was also giving up on my father, and at this point in my life, that I, I had come to view him cynically and, and as just a, a check in the mail, really. You know, he started instead of writing checks to my own mother uh, for support. You know, this was a very unofficial type of child support. He started writing them to me, and um, so there was this emphasis on on uh, materialism, and that okay this man isn't a part of my life, um, in any real way, but he sends a a little bit of money over. And so there was this, uh, you know, in the 1990s, it was like, this is what the real world was. It's making money, making opportunity for yourself. And, um, you know, all this romantic stuff about, Oh, I needed this man as my father or there's this beautiful country saved at a great price. All of that went away. Um,
0: so, what rekindled your interest? Well,
1: my um, my mother died in um, twenty eleven. You know, that was my whole childhood home, in a sense, was was gone by then. You know, in my mid, in my late twenties, I remember going through her her things in the in the house after she died, and I found right together, I found a stack of letters and drafts of her letters to my father from my own childhood, and I found with it a uh, you know this bit of political propaganda from Northern Ireland called uh, Britain's War Machine in Ireland, written by uh, the Reverend Maurice Burke. And uh, it was ostensibly to uh, moralize Americans to contribute to the armed struggle. Uh, And it immediately kind of took me back. And soon I was having my own children and I found myself with these impulses to to do exactly what my mother did, which was kind of fall in love with this, this country and to claim it absurdly for myself. And gradually at this time, I was also really connecting with my father more. Um, you know, one of my sisters was over here working. Um, one of my half sisters was over here working. And we started visiting more and seeing each other more. Um, and so he kind of invited me to make, make the connection a little bit deeper
0: and then you started looking again at, I suppose, the history of Irish nationalism because, in a way, this is kind of where the book, the meat of the book, starts. You're you're becoming a father, and you're looking at both your relationship with your own father, which is often that's often a kind of a pivotal point in people's lives when they're becoming a parent themselves. Um, and you're looking at figures, the the figures of the Irish Revolution, Patrick Pearse and Owen McNeill in particular are the two most significant ones.
1: Yeah, I, um, you know, in many ways, I was. I felt confronted with this, this idea of okay, who do I tell this child? Who who is she? And at the same time, you know, I'm I'm listening to Irish radio and and I'm hearing people commemorating uh, the history uh, of Ireland themselves. Right? This is going on from 2014 when people are when John Bruton is commemorating the passage of Home Rule, or or, um, and as 2016 comes, my daughter is a few months old um you know i'm seeing these productions coming over from ireland you know like there's an rte production called rebellion in which patrick pierce is clearly portrayed as you know a figure from the islamic state uh transported into early 20th century ireland and you know i was hearing all of this stuff from sir bob geldof about men of the rising being just like isis and i thought you know what Maybe this uh, revisionism that I accepted in the 90s, this demythologizing, has actually um, misled people, too. And let let me look back at this more. And what I found in it was, you know, what the book really is about is, is looking to these figures in The Rising, McNeil, but also Casement and Patrick Pierce, of course, and vindicating their... Um, their political imagination over the one that I was given in the 1990s. You know, in some way they were, they felt this heavy hand of history on them and it it was impelling them to do something hard and difficult uh, for the future. And I felt that when I looked back on the cultural formation and the education I was given, that I was in a sense always kind of bubble wrapped from you know, deep passions like that are deep convictions. Uh, that in some ways I was raised to be uh, Nietzsche's last man. You know, someone who cared only about the immediate and obvious bodily comforts or social status, and not about these larger ideas of history, nation. Uh, you know, a patrimony. Uh, and so, I, I in some ways I, I look to them as like an antidote to. My skepticism and materialism from the 1990s.
0: I suppose, though, there are many pasts that we can choose from, aren't we? Because our 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 past histories, our past family histories, are very complex, and you know, yeah. you can you, you can choose to go down many routes. I mean, I I'm interested that you pick on one of the sort of key texts you pick on is is ghosts, which was a essay pamphlet that Pierce wrote the, the year before the um, the Rising. And it's really it's a it's a sort of a generational attack as much as anything. It's a it's an yeah. attack on the preceding generation who had failed to mount any sort of resistance to British rule over the previous four decades or whatever it was. And it's a really vehement attack on their complete moral failure, as he saw it.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, in the in the book, I describe how my mother's letters to my father when I was young had this kind of formula to them almost, and that she would begin by, you know, informing him of the news about his son. And then she would kind of, uh, lay into him. She would give, give him this great accusal about how he was failing, how he owed more to his son, how he owed more to us. Um, that he wasn't living up to expectations. And then in the end, she kind of, before the letter closes, she would, she would turn the tone into something else. I mean, she was still in love with this man, and she was she would turn it into something more inviting and and kind of hint at how much she still loved him. And in a way, the book was doing the same thing. I, I was adopting Pierce's attitude towards his previous generation to to the previous generation to me and saying in a sense, you not only through the fatherless childhood I had, but through the education I had, this was an an attempt to disinherit me from what was owed to me. Um, the sense of belonging to a larger structure that gives me meaning and, and some purpose. And I'm going to reclaim that even if it looks foolish, um, and, and quixotic and strange. Because, of course, I'm, I'm expecting if people in Ireland read this book, you know, and they hear my voice right now, you know, they're just thinking, what is this crazy yank, this plastic doing? Uh, and, and the book, in a way, is to say, to borrow a little bit of Pierce's fanaticism and say, I don't care what you think. Uh, I was owed this and I'm going to claim it.
0: Well, right. I, I and I don't want to oversimplify this because I think it's a complex argument you're making and it's also it's it's the, the work is a is a work of creative writing as well. And so it th- there are many layers of meaning it's it seems to me. But I mean I've listened to a couple of podcasts you've done in the States and a couple of reviews of the book and they sort of <laughs> they, they you know they, they, they tip their hat, you know, respectfully towards your, your knowledge of Irish history and your views on Irish history. But obviously they're not particularly engaged with it. But obviously here in Ireland and you do reference this in the book, um there's a lot of uh there's still a lot of ambiguity around the question of the arising. rising it strikes me that actually the the 1916 celebrations the centenary celebrations marked a point at which that really deep um republican versus revisionist divide was not necessarily healed i don't really care what bob geldof had to say by the way but at least some form of synthesis and agreement <laughs> to move on was 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 reached a recognition that it was a shared history um but but ghosts is a is a particularly problematic one, it seems to me, because it ties into that broader movement happening at that early twentieth century that desire for violence, you know, which manifested itself across the continent at that point. We need to recognise, I suppose, that Pierce was writing while hundreds of thousands of people were dying on the on the on the Western and Eastern fronts. So that's so that's part of the context. But it's it's the ki- if, if there's one text which is still used to this day implicitly by people like the people who murdered the journalist Lyra McKee a couple of weeks ago. It's probably that text. It, it, it mm. arrogates to itself uh, a right to take up arms, um, whether or not uh, it actually refutes the fact, the idea that there might be such a thing as a democratic legitimacy. And it, it, it holds in contempt mm. ideas like compromise or negotiation or pragmatism. And that has echoed uncomfortably down the years in Irish history. To so, this you day. Know, it's,
1: yeah, it's interesting. I, I acknowledge, I think, all of that. Although, I mean, I would dispute on, a little bit on the on the terms. I think, you know, Pierce is obviously, when, when he's in full lather in that last year before the rising, I mean, I tend to read him and I think he's he's urging himself to do something that's kind of unusual for you know, a short story writer and language activist and educator. Um, you know, I don't. I don't think he was naturally uh, a brute. Um, so he has to exercise himself to to take up arms, um, face death, and, and face the prospect of killing for his ideas. The thing is, yes, there's it. The essay doesn't have a lot of respect for democracy, but I would. I mean, my own view would, you know, I don't know if we want to get into the weeds in history. We we probably own, shouldn't.
0: We do that in another podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: my, but yeah, my own view is that that democracy had already been subverted in, in a fundamental way in uh, in Ireland um, and in this in the extra constitutional subversion of home rule, um, and and that's what triggers people that were home rulers like uh, Pierce to uh to switch to physical force nationalism and i don't i don't I, w- I would not say ghost is an eternal mandate to take up the gun. Um, no, no, and
0: and, 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 and your view on that is a legitimate view, which is held by many people both in Ireland and overseas, and it's you know it's 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 quite a ma- it's quite quite a mainstream view. Um, and some people agree with it and and don't agree with it. I'm, I'm more interested rather than arguing about about that because, as I say, that would be a whole other podcast, which I'm happy to do at some time, by the way. <laughs> but 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 just the way that Pierce focuses, I, I see a parallel. And correct me if I'm wrong. In some ways, between. Pierce's kind of revulsion and uh reaction against this preceding generation this preceding morally compromised uh, morally relativistic um um static uh generation and some of your reaction in the in 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 the 1990s against what you were seeing around you as you became an adult is that yeah. fair at all
1: That's that's absolutely fair and the, and, the, and that's it's why i wrote the book right is that i i found this I, I was, at one hand, re- uh, in one hand rejecting, um, to some degree, the the culture that formed me, and and embracing a little bit more, you know, this breadcrumb crumb trail that my 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 father and and my mother left me in my early childhood um, to something larger. I, I felt that, um, not that I felt that there was some great impending work of violence that needed to be done. You know, that's that's not at all my issue, but that, um, that fundamentally, like I said, I was disinherited, that I was, you know, my, my father felt that he could define for the most part, at least, at least originally how I felt was he could define the terms on which he was a father by himself, that he was entirely free to do this. And that the, the culture around me encouraged me to, uh, define my own terms on every question, uh, and in a sense that that gives a weightlessness to your journey in life that uh, you, you, the rejection or acceptance of, 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 uh, your parents or, or them starts to become weightless and meaningless. And, um, this is an assertion that, you know, the book, bu- the book is an assertion of, of, of trying to, to get out of this ideological bubble wrap that separates us from our histories and, and from each other and, and to open ourselves up. Uh, and, and for me, it was having children that do does that. And, and the suggestion is that maybe if more of us had children and and actually took responsibility for them, we would be opened up, um, in the same way. And, And perhaps there are even political problems in Ireland or in America that can't be solved unless we recover, uh, this sense of belonging to one another, uh, in a fundamental way that, that, um, the powerful critique I think nationalism offers our moment, at least, is that, um, you know, maybe it's a shame that so many people are, are sleeping rough in, in Dublin or can't afford health care in the United States and that we're too engaged in our private enterprises and too obsessed with our rising property values to uh, do anything about it, to do what's owed um in the present.
0: You I mean you write about contemporary politics and you write about finding meaning in life and what that means both on a I suppose on a philosophical or metaphysical level, you're you're a practicing Catholic and also yeah. what it means for the societies in which we live and the societies which we're making we're we're making for our children. Um has anybody queried at all how come you an American are writing about nationalism in this way rather than writing about American nationalism?
1: Uh, You know, I've gotten a few side eyes, right? You'd you'd imagine because um, I write for, you know, I'm identified with conservatives over here and American nationalism traditionally is anti-hyphenate. But I just accept that that's a contradiction uh, in my, you know, in my story. And I accept, uh, you know... uh, I have this much more living connection. I mean, when my mother died, my, my closest blood relative had spent almost all his days in Dublin and my other close relatives, uh, my half siblings, you know, they're, most of them are living in Dublin. Um, you know, the majority of my aunts are living in Dublin. And when I go there, I have a family table to be around now. Um, so I, I would be connected to Ireland, you know, no matter what, uh, by that simple, you know, biological fact. Um, and the joy of my adulthood has been been making that a social fact in my life and, and do, going over.
0: And does that fact of your personal life, that accident of history, however you want to characterize it, does that allow you then to take Ireland, which is in many ways smaller and therefore easier to kind of think about as a as a... Uh, something cohesive, which you can build, a, build some theories and some life stories around, in a way that you can't do with 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 the United States, and it allows you to tell a story in a way that you wouldn't be able to do otherwise.
1: Um, I think I just have the outsiders a slight outsiders advantage on on Ireland, where um, whereas you know maybe I couldn't write about America until until I've lived in Ireland for thirty years <laughs> or something. Um, the reason I think. Um, I wanted to write this book in the way I, that I did and to to address some of these current questions about political nationalism through Ireland was that, one, Ireland is, is not seen right now as enthrall to nationalism. And um, because Ireland is this small country with this, you know, in the cliches, this troubled and difficult history... Um, talking about Ireland as a home was a good a good entry point for talking about this this idea of, of nations as homes that have troubled and complicated histories. Whereas you know, America is is sort of um, you know uh, Francis Fukuyama's book, The End of History and the Last Man, could only have been written by an American because being in this giant superpower, we're kind of buffeted from history and. Um, we are bubble wrapped here from, from history, even the history we're creating with our foreign policy in many ways elsewhere. Um, so Ireland was, was, uh, an easier choice for communicating to American audiences, this sense of a home that is, uh, got a complicated history is troubled and is vulnerable in, in some way, right? Like people, people can imagine Ireland is vulnerable, And yet I'm asserting its fundamental dignity, the way I'm asserting the fundamental dignity of the family home, even my broken family home.
0: Because there's a very live debate, isn't there? I mean, more broadly, there's a live debate around what nationalism means now. There is the rise of political movements which assert their commitment to to nationalism in a way that we haven't seen in a while. There's a live debate in the United States between yeah. two, you know, some people characterize it as patriotism versus nationalism. First, some people characterize it as that America should be thought of as an idea as opposed to being a place of, uh, to use the most unpleasant characterization, blood and soil.
1: Right. I wanted to speak to those debates. And and the book, I hope, is a little bit of a message um, To all of them, I I do think that the uh, vogue for nationalism in some European countries that I visited and even here in America is is born of a fear that we have we've somehow failed, um, failed the future or failed our our children in some fundamental way. uh, And we're not handing on uh, our countries as as they should be. And my but you know what i wanted to do by by grounding the sense of uh this question of nationalism in the family and in the home was was almost make a suggestion you know if the if the book ever gets its translated into uh french or hungarian or polish or, or something like that I, I you know i hope the book inspires in some of these younger nationalists that you see in those countries a sense that maybe their project isn't so much i don't know putting together a, a, a political doctrine that they're going to force on the nation, but really thinking about and creating a posterity and making real sacrifices on that posterity's behalf. Um, you know, that, that's what I wanted to put at the heart of, of this question. Um, and, you know, it was also a suggestion for American nationalists. I, 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 I have this sense, I can't prove it through social science that, you know, we saw, um, you know this authoritarian nationalism spring up in russia and maybe later now in 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 uh, central europe and america and it all happened in the years after the fertility rate plunged well below replacement level um particularly the the native fertility rate and i think uh it's i think those questions are tied together this this fearful attitude to the future that may be driving this politics is driven by you know what i take to be a real lack of investment in the, in the actual future i think people feel more at home when they're actually building a home when they're actually investing in their own children uh, and the children in their community uh, if you're just a disconnected atomized person staring into a computer screen you might fear for the future a lot more you might you might vote for these fearful figures these fearful men
0: Although the atomization and individualization of society is not, is not solely due to changes in fertility rates. It's also due to the way that societies are structured. Uh, before we go down that road, I just wanted to ask you as well about, I mean, you talk about this intergenerational transition of of, of meaning, but nationalism is incredibly protean and malleable as well, isn't it? I mean, it's, you know, um, you know, there were were Ulster Presbyterians who were at at the vanguard of republicanism in the 18th century and at the vanguard of unionism. uh, their, Their offspring were 100 years later. If you look at the rise of English nationalism in the wake of Brexit, nationalisms come and go, different stories rise and fall. Don't
1: they? Yeah. I, uh, so, you know, my view of politics is that um, the words we use, these labels, socialist, communist, uh, you know, liberal, democratic and nationalist or conservative, they don't they don't actually describe the same things. It's not like you change one set of ideas and throw another one in and it's the same thing. You know, communism is this theory of history. Socialism is is a an attempt at political organization and and conservatism, you know, as we understand it in America and maybe a larger Anglo American tradition is a, is more of like a disposition towards the past. And in my view of nationalism, and this is, this is maybe my own, and maybe there are academics who will roll their eyes at this. My view of nationalist politics is that they, they spring out of national, um, a deep and normally, peaceful sense of national loyalty that when it becomes aroused or irritated by um a circumstance or a political goal um it, it, it that deep well of passion that allows people to live generally peacefully together suddenly does uh, springs out in anger to do something whether it's you know achieve manifest destiny in in the united states whether it's to achieve, you know, a home rule parliament in Dublin or something much uglier like Lebensraum for uh, the German Volk. Um, So I I do think it has this protean character and nationalists pick up capitalism or communism opportunistically, depending on what patrons they want and what enemies they they seek to destroy
0: listen the, the clock is against us a little bit here unfortunately <laughs> but i did i did want to ask you something um before we go because i mean we, we've been in communication in the past and you've been uh, as, as you know i always welcome um criticism <laughs> uh cons, cons, constructive or otherwise for this podcast and i think you've been, it's fair to say you've been critical of you know the overton window which exists say on this podcast no. for for example in terms of the the, the range of, of of views that we it's, that we cover it's only
1: because you'll listen to me if you it's and it's not just you it's more of a, I'm speaking into Ireland's, uh, you know, larger culture. I think, but you you get it from me. <laughs>
0: well, uh, you, well I, and, and I'm happy to get it too. Let me you know, okay, you know, keep keep doing it, keep doing it, please. But you are. Um I think you have you have some opposite points to make about... the fact, I've, I'm looking at a tweet which you tweeted a few days ago. The Irish Times, at some exceptions, remarkably preserves the prejudices of the Victorian home rule era, which are that hardcore nationalism is nothing but mythology and violence, Gaelic culture is inferior, diddly-eye-eyes, and respectable people should think more on rising property values. I have to take you up on one point. The Irish Times wasn't a home rule paper. It was a unionist paper.
1: You're right, right. No, no, no. I, I, yeah, I know you're, you're correct. Um, although... Yeah, I I I I look at Ireland and I I see um, I see a dead consensus in this coalition government and and maybe in uh, the media sphere. And, um, you know, there's a sense in which Ireland (laughs) Ireland has the freest private conversation I've ever known in in the world. It's, you know, around a table or if the, the GAA is closed at night, you know, suddenly. Uh, everyone can say what's in their heart and on their mind. But in the public conversation, uh, Ireland, I think, is more like a Northern European country. And it's a little bit more, there's a little bit more social pressure to land on a consensus and, and to police that consensus and keep everyone on it, whether it's a Catholic nationalist consensus or a liberal capitalist one. Um,
0: Yeah, there's a a particular critique. I just want to know what what you think of it, which is that, you know, comes from conservative commentators in Ireland in particular, people like David Quinn and Brito O'Brien in our own newspaper, which is that we switched from being a unanimous view on one side of the culture war's argument to being a unanimous view on the other, and that there's very little space left for dissent now as there was previously.
1: Yeah, well, I think the the better better critique is is that, um, you know, when I read the Irish Times, I feel like I hear that free private conversation that almost anarchic Irish conversation is happening in the background somewhere and that the, the columnists are writing with it in mind and that they don't necessarily have, uh, the opposing columnists to, to argue against. So, um, it's not so much that it's, uh, a policed consensus. It's more that it's a false one, that it's, uh, that, uh, I think there was more, there was more dissent and was more room for uh, maneuver in the previous dispensation. And there's still room for for maneuver now, even if uh,
0: people may not see it. Michael Brandon Doherty, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Thank you so much. My Father Left Me Ireland is published in the US by Penguin Random House. Michael tells me that some copies are available in Irish bookshops, but, you know, if all else fails, there's always the internet. That's it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. And until the next time, thanks for listening.